We've been in a series uh, called Death to Life, and we've been uh, reading out of 1 John chapter 3, verses 14. And the sign that we're going to know, the Bible says, that we have passed out from death to life is because we love our brothers. I believe the true door past love is generosity. The most famous scripture that you will find in the Bible is found in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And it starts the, the, the scripture read like this, For God so loved the world that he gave. Let's go through a checklist here really quick, really quick as we start this message. God made the sun, it gives. God made the moon, it gives. God made the stars, they give. God made the air, it gives. God made the clouds, they give. God made the earth, it gives. God made the trees, they give. God made the flowers, they give. God made the birds, they give. God made the beasts, they give. God made the plants, they give. And God made man so that they will take. No, God made us so that we will be people of generosity. We've been talking about this in this message called Death to Life. In the end, it's not what you have gathered, but what you have given that tells a story about your life. A couple things that you have to know if you're new to, our faith, new to the faith, or the Christian faith, there is a difference between being a convert of Christ and a disciple of Christ. Many are satisfied in their soul with conversion rather than lordship. The goal is discipleship, though, and I want to ask you a question as we start this morning. Is that your heart? Are you satisfied with just having Jesus as your Savior, or is there something in you that knows that you have to have Jesus as your Lord? The truth is, is if he's not Lord of all, he's really not Lord at all. The mandate of the church, according to Matthew chapter 28, is not just conversion, but it's discipleship. Here's what Matthew chapter 28 says as a command of the church. Go, there, go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, ready for this, to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the ends of the age. I love the promise that is attached to this scripture. Make disciples, baptize, and teach all. All, not just the easy parts. Not just the comfortable parts or the things that you agree with or even the things that you even understand. But this scripture says as believers that we are to teach what? All. Look at your neighbor and say all. There's a lot of people that will say, well, pastor, I, because I don't understand it or because I don't have a good experience with it, that I'm not going to submit myself under the lordship. No, that's not lordship of putting yourself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There are some people say, well, because there's been spiritual abuses that means that, that I don't really have to do that. No. The Bible says that we are to walk in all of that he's commanded us. The goal is to walk in fullness. Here's the promise, and I love the promise. The moment that you start trying to teach all of his commands, ready for it? I need you to know that I'm with you because it's going to be really hard. <laughs> because the moment, you know, if I, if I came and, uh, to the church that I pastor, if I just told you what you wanted to hear, that's not discipleship. But the moment that I begin to tell you what you need to hear is the moment that I need to learn how to stand on this kind of promise, which is, I'm going to be with you, pastor. I'm going to be with you, discipleship makers. Because Savior Jesus is a lot easier to talk about than Lord Jesus. And one of the first words that describes our king after the word love is what? He gave. So not only is the command to love, but the command to love will bring in its DNA the command to give. 
And this morning, I just want to set the stage because generosity is about money, but it's not exclusive to money. It's really about our time, our energy, our effort, and in the end, our priorities. Here's what Matthew chapter 6 says. No one can serve two masters. What I believe that we have as part of the American church is this dual thing happening where we're serving two masters. But the Bible says that we can't serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in the end, you cannot serve God and money. Here's what Ryan Visconti says, pastor of Generations Church in Arizona. If you don't master your money, your money will master you. And the way you master money as a disciple of Jesus is is following kingdom principles found in Scripture. See, if you're a disciple, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, I want you to know this morning, these rules do not apply to you. They will work. They are universal truths. But you need not be offended by this pastor preaching kingdom principles. But if you are a Christian and you desire to be more than a convert and a disciple of Christ, I want you to lean in this morning. Generosity is really found in three places in our life. It's found in our finances, it's found in our time, and it's found in our purpose. Let me just lay the groundwork this morning because I'm going to dive in and talking about the topic of money this morning, but really it's money as a priority in our life more than anything. So when I talk about terms like what is tithe, tithe is the first 10% of your income or increase which goes back to God. Malachi chapter 3 tells us exactly where it's supposed to go to the storehouse or the place where you worship God. Why, how, and where I tithe is of importance to God because he's given us instructions to do so. Now i got to lay some groundwork this morning on the principle of tithing. And the reason why I, I picked tithing this morning to go in line with this scripture on love, because if you love, you give. And if you give, the Bible says in Matthew, Jesus says that tithing or your money is the least important way that you show that you're a disciple of Jesus. Many people in the American church make tithing or generosity or giving a weightier thing, but the Bible says that actually truth and justice are actually weightier than money. And so listen to me, if you're getting offended over money this morning, as I just even launch and talk to it, you have to know that there should be a warning sign on the inside of your heart. That maybe I am just satisfied with Savior Jesus, And I haven't even begun to think about becoming a disciple of Jesus and making him Lord of my life. So let me lay some groundwork this morning. Not everything in the life of a Christian is as simple as the Old Testament versus the New Testament. We don't read the First Testament or the first half of the Bible and say as Christians, let us rip up the Old Testament. It doesn't apply to us anymore. No, we believe that it's very important. The Old Testament lays a foundation and cast a vision. Through systematic theology, the Old Testament is to be understood and experienced through the redeeming work of Christ. In other words, the Old Testament without the New Testament is a promise unfulfilled. That's the limbo that the Jews live in. They have the promise, but they don't understand that they've already received the fulfillment of that promise through Jesus. The New Testament then becomes a gift that can't be appreciated without the Old Testament. So let me give you some examples of what you need to understand when you begin to study your word. Through systematic theology, you will learn lessons like the following. Did you know that there are three types of of laws found in the Old Testament? There are civil laws, there are ceremonial laws, and there are moral laws. 
Civil laws were God's laws given specifically to the Israelites in that time. They can give you insight on how God has dealt with certain issues over time. You'll read laws like Leviticus, and if your kids back talk to you, you stone them to death. Come on, somebody, you've been there before, haven't you? You know what I'm talking about. You're like, we should probably go under that rule a little bit more often. No. We, we recognize that those do not apply to today. Those were civil laws given specifically to the Israelites to bring order to the camp or the, the people of God at that time. The second type of laws were ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws were God's laws concerning the treatment of his tabernacle and the Levites who ministered to it. So not only were there civil laws for the people of Israel, there were also ceremonial laws for those that were in charge of his temple, the, the pastors, the ministers of that time. And then the third type of laws there were, there were moral laws. These laws are universal for all people in all time. And so how do I know what laws are moral versus civil and ceremonial? One quick way is that they are repeated in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. Two out of those three laws don't apply to us today, but the third types of laws, the moral laws, do, i.e. the Ten Commandments. The reason why we know we're supposed to follow the Ten Commandments as believers today is because they are repeated in the New Testament and oftentimes in a harsher manner. Some of you say that if you commit adultery, you committed, no, if you have lust in your heart towards a woman, you've actually committed adultery. You guys tracking with me this morning? A second truth is this, that you will learn and see in the Old Testament, is God's heart of truth and love wasn't just something that popped up in the New Testament. Lucifer, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 18, you ready for this one? Lucifer, who then became Satan. Lucifer was a fallen angel. He was in control of a third of God's kingdom, so the word says in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 28 and 18 says this. Ready for this phrase? By the multitude of your iniquities, Lucifer. So it wasn't like Lucifer was up in heaven and committed an iniquity and God smite him, hit him with a hammer. The Bible says that even he had grace and mercy in heaven, and how do you get a third of the angels to fall if, if you only had one opportunity to do so? So what you see even reading in the Old Testament, a lot of people think, well, the judgment of God in the Old Testament was really harsh. The law was really harsh. It was. We're thankful for the new covenant, Jesus. He, he, is, our, he is our substitution. But you even see in the Old Testament the grace and mercy of God in action. You'll see things like this through systematic theology. You know the word Trinity is not used in the Bible. It's what Bible teachers have used to describe Genesis 1.26, for let us make man in our image, is what God says. So you, you understand that the Old Testament is important to understand the redeeming work of Christ in the New Testament. Let me give you an example of this story that we're reading through Cain and Abel and Cain and Abel give us this first peek into the practices of first fruits. So you know that Cain and Abel didn't have a Bible to read. So how did they know that they were supposed to bring the first fruits to God? One phrase that we have used as, as Bible, Bible uh, students is used to describe doctrines we read in Scripture for hundreds of years is a term called natural law. Natural law was... Uh, for reference, was brought up by this, this man named Aquinas. Uh, if you want to download my notes, you can find some, some, some things in there that, that will describe to you in more. But natural law basically states in the definition, it's a body of unchanging moral principles regarded as a basis for all human contact, conduct. This doctrine or teaching 
basically states that you don't even need a Bible to know kingdom principles because God ingrained them into your soul when he created man. So how did Cain and Abel know to give? I believe not only did they not have scripture, but they had a real relationship with God. They were conversing, and as part of that relationship in their DNA, they know that love meant that you give. Ecclesiastes 3 and 11 says this, He has also set eternity in their heart without the possibility that mankind will find out the work which God has done for them from the beginning even to the end. Or in other words, in your heart, when he created man, there was in your DNA the ability to know between right and wrong. Ecclesiastes 7.29, Truly, this only have I found, that God made what? Man upright. But they sought out many schemes. Genesis 1 and 31 says this, Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was what? It was very good. It was good. It's important to understand, as part of understanding Scripture, that when he created man, it was what? It was good. But then, Adam and Eve got involved. And we can debate for hours if it was Eve's fault or Adam's fault, um, but we're just going to go with Adam. It was Adam's fault. The fall of man made what was good, what? Not good. Sin came into this world by our choice, but natural law states, though, that there are kingdom principles that are still built in us as humans that know, but now that they are inside fallen man, hence the battle that we face. Hence, every morning we've got to wake up and die to ourselves daily. Come on, somebody, that's hard, especially if you're not a morning person. I'm not a morning person. If you come and see me in the morning, I might have some residue on some past things that I need to get out of my life. But the Bible, so let me give you an example. Everyone, or everyone should know, that murder, rape, or harming children is wrong at the core. Even the most convicted atheist believes this. Morality ingrained in us, or our conscience, is a sign that points to a creator. The Bible explains these, as ready for this word? Precepts. Precepts defined as this, a command or principle intended especially as a general rule of action. So if you want to go from just being a convert of Christ to a disciple of Christ, you have to understand that our ways are not his ways. There is a way that seems right to man, and its end is destruction and death, but then there is a way that, seems, that is right from God. So precepts. We, we read this word, a lot of this word, it occurs in Psalms 119. It comes from a Hebrew word, and I don't, I, I'm not there in my studies yet, but it, it's, it's pronounced in the American tongue, picadim. I'm sure it's not that, but it's, I'm, I'm going to give you the, the, the lay pastor's version of this Hebrew word. And there are many examples in Psalms 119, and let's go over three of them really quick. Psalms 119.15 reads this, I will meditate on your precepts or your ways, and contemplate your ways. So let's pause here. He was excited about meditating about rules? Like who wants to go play Monopoly and just read the rules? Well, someone who wants to win and doesn't think free parking should include $500, that's who. <laughs> or every time you pass go, you get like a million dollars, right? Like who wants to play? Well, the Smothermans, will, our, our Monopoly games usually end up in a table tossed and forgiveness talks afterwards. Come on, somebody. Is anyone competitive like that? All right. 
holidays are coming, the natural family splits are going to be here, and if you have a family split over a board game, I will do counseling for you, but it will cost you $500 of Monopoly money. <laughs> so meditate on rules. Not really. The author of this psalm said, it's important for me to meditate not just on the way of God, but understand why he spoke to me to do it that way. Psalms 119.27 says this, Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. God, I want to know you so intimately that I don't just know what you want me to do. I want to know why you want me to do it. Because I want to understand the works of it that are in your hand, and I want to be not just a convert of Jesus, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. One last one, Psalms 119.41. Ready for this one? And I will walk at liberty, for I will seek your precepts. Every young person in this room, listen to me. The, the ways of God or the precepts of God are not for your bondage, they're for your freedom. Many people think that freedom is found in a life with no rules or no ways. But those of us that have lived a lot of life know that the moment that we started doing it our own way with our own freedoms, we better have ducked, correct? Marriages that ended in divorce and, and times when we've been arrested for DUIs and drugs and alcohol addiction. We thought the freedom that we really wanted was going to bring us freedom, but it actually brought us a whole bunch of despair, now didn't it? So you have to understand, young person, it is, the, it is the rules or the ways of God that if you will live inside of them like the banks of a river that actually bring freedom. A lot of people will come to me and say, well, pastor, I don't believe in the ways of God. And I'll say, it would almost be like you going down I-5 today and they were to get rid of all the speed limits and all of the lines and all of the standards and all of the police officers and you were just to have a free-for-all. If you didn't wreck yourself, someone else would wreck yourself. And so the author of this psalm understood and observed what? That liberty and freedom actually happen when I follow the foundation of the precepts of God. So I will meditate on your precepts. Help me understand. Kingdom principles, though, in most cases, are contrary to our fallen, fret, fallen flesh. Corinthians 13 even says this. Ready for this one? It is possible to give all that I have to the poor and still not have love. Here's what Corinthians says. It's possible for me to give my body to be burned at a stake and still not have love. Meaning, it is possible for you to even do the right things, but not be the right thing. Our flesh, by its nature, wants to take. But our kingdom nature, by its nature, wants to give. And becoming a disciple of Jesus is about understanding and following and knowing that His way is better than our way. Look to your neighbor and say, His better is better than our way. His way is better than our way. Isaiah chapter 28 verses 10 says this, For precept must be upon precept, comma, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Here's the truth. You do not get to pick and choose what kingdom principle to follow and which not to follow. Consumerism in our culture has taught us that. Don't like that? Change churches. Disagree with that? Who cares? I'm going to make my own rules. Love those who you like, ignore those who you don't like. Our walk to maturity, though, through Scripture is gained by what? Painful, here a little, and there a little. 
that as you read the word, your way becomes less and less, and his word becomes more and more. So the Bible, it's full of precepts, commands, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Let me get my preach on for the next five minutes, all right? People have asked me in very cunning ways, Pastor, which way do you lean? Do you lean to the left or do you lean to the right? And they, they'll ask in very many cunning ways. Do you know what my answer to them is? Respectfully, Christians don't lean, they stand. Hallelujah. They stand on the word of God. If it says it, we believe it. If it tells us to do it, that's what we do. If it tells us to think on pure and right and noble things, that's what we do. So we stand on the sanctity of life. We stand on, ready for this one? Two genders, the male and female, he created them. We stand on marriage as, as described in God's word between a man and a woman. We don't have sex before we're married. Come on, somebody. We stand on marriage as described. We stand against religion and Pharisaic thinking that has ruined the church. We stand against the forms of power that have taken residence in the church. We, we, we stand against doctrines that tell us that God has mercy on us, but judgment on others. We recognize that in the church, if we're not careful, we will stand in a place of judgment when really we are called to stand in a place of love. And it's not a naive love that thinks that we have no enemies, but a radical love that loves enemies. People have asked me, Pastor, where do you stand on the moving of the Holy Spirit? If I haven't made myself clear enough, Acts is not the history book of the church that is for historical, philosophical, metaphysical, emotional feeling, feel-good stories to make the church feel good about how we started. It is a living, breathing, continuing work that is supposed to be seen in the church today. Signs, wonders, miracles. The churches are not supposed to be surviving and shrinking back. It's supposed to be advancing and moving forward. And you need to ask yourself a question this morning. If you are not seeing it in your life, what the Bible describes in the book of Acts, if you're not seeing the miraculous as part of your life, you must ask yourself the question, am I truly a part of the real church? See, those that claim that his works are done only confirm their lack of faith to those around them. I am not a cessationist. I still believe in the operation, the moving of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe in signs and wonders and miracles, nor do I chase them, though, because I know that if I believe and run after him, they chase us. That presence that you felt on that praise song and the first worship song, the Bible says as he is lifted up, he draws all men unto himself. I still believe that God is putting marriages back together. I still believe he's bringing prodigals home. I still believe like when I first got here, there was a young man whose back was curved, but it was straightened in the middle of a prayer service at our church. I believe it, that when you pray for cancer and you rebuke it, it's gone in Jesus' name. I believe that. Why do I believe that? Not oftentimes because my experience has matched that. My experience, listen to me, my experience is not my God. This is my God, the Word of God, my relationship with God is what I believe. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching a lot better than you're shouting, all right? If you want to know what kind of precepts there are in Scripture, let me give you a couple of them really quickly. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 14. This is a good way to follow. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Don't you believe in a praying church? And a church that doesn't just say we're going to talk about prayer, but it actually prays. 9.15 every Sunday morning in that prayer room back there, there are people that are calling it down. If you want to know what it means to intercede on behalf of a service or you want to learn how to pray, join us at 9.15 every Sunday morning. It is a great precept or a way. The Bible doesn't give us an option to pray. It says pray. Matthew chapter 17 verses 19 through 21 is another kind of way. The disciples said, you know, we, we, we couldn't cast this demon out. And Jesus says to them, but this kind of demon does not go out except by what? Prayer and fasting. We don't just believe in prayer. We believe in prayer and fasting. We, we, we believe in setting times aside in our life to get closer to Jesus. And the reason why we do it is not because we think it's a good idea, but because his ways are higher than our ways. Here's what Hebrews chapter 12 and 14 says. Strive with, for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you know the anointing of God is costly? Do you, do you, do you realize that His presence, His precious presence, wasn't just in our room and isn't in our room right now because of people that don't really care about it? No, there was a cost for His presence to be in this room this morning. People have been praying, we've been fasting, we've been believing, we've been sacrificing, we've been walking in obedience. We've been saying, Lord, would the move of God start with Parkway in this community? And I want to be clear about this. The move of God is bigger than a church in this community. It's bigger than Parkway. It's not our job, again, to populate Parkway. It's our job to populate heaven. It's our job to not just make or have conversions, but have disciple, disciple makers in our, in our church. Let me be clear. What I am after as a minister of the gospel is a genuine move of God amongst the people that God has assigned us for. I'm not here for a paycheck. I've had one. I'm not here for a position. I never needed one. I'm not here for popularity or prestige because my motto is it's our job to make Jesus famous. But my family, Jay Brooke, Jaden, and Jace are here to be a part of the genuine the authentic hunger that is arising for the great move of God promised to this valley. And I want you to know it's going to take everything we have, and then when we're at the end of what we have, God's going to show up. Because partnering with people with love and compassion, ready for this one? It's my job to move you from being a leaner Christian to being a Christian who knows how to stand. To stand. To not waver but to stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ and that will cause you to win. It's why God told Joshua the following. You have to choose this day whom you will serve. But when that happens, that heart of yours that has been transformed by Jesus becomes the taskmaster to the flesh that has been fallen and not the other way around. I want to ask you a genuine, sincere question as I disciple Christians in this room. Aren't you tired of the cycle? Aren't you tired of the cycle? God, I'll never do it again. God, I'll never do it again. God, I'll never do it again. I'm eating the consequences of my decisions. God, I'll never do it again. God, I'll never do it again, only to go do that thing again. The Bible says that if you add these things, and Peter, if you add these things, you will come to a place where you will never stumble again. 
that there is victory in Jesus. There's not cycles of defeat in Jesus. There is victory in Jesus. That your marriages can win. Your kids can win. Your community can win. Your church can win. And I know it's hard to believe next to an American gospel that doesn't teach you how to walk in faith and live an overcoming life. But you can win in Jesus' name. These precepts are built upon in the First Testament. And we have talked about this morning that the Ten Commandments still apply today, largely even stricter. But the point is, is they point us to Jesus. They point us to this incredible truth. On our own, we're in trouble. If following these commands and precepts fully were required for salvation, the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short. But I'm thankful for Jesus, who is rich in mercy. If you're thankful for Jesus this morning, would you give him one big round of applause? <laughs> Hallelujah. Thankful. So Cain and Abel give us this prime example of an Old Testament precept being carried over to the New Testament. Many Bible college students, Sunday school classes, small groups, even I as pastor asked you last week, why in this passage of Scripture in 1 John, when it's talking about loving each other, why did the author, this aging apostle, point out Cain and Abel as a, as a reason for us to love each other? Why, why did God accept Abel's offering but not Cain's? I believe, I'll give you my answer this morning, I believe that simply that God didn't want leftovers. He wanted it to be prioritized and wasn't. I want to be clear here. Honoring God with your life isn't about giving Him our best. The Bible says that our best is like filthy rags. But honoring God is about putting Him first. How was Cain supposed to know that? He had no Bible to reference, no law to follow. I think Romans 2 and 15 gives us some insight. Here's what Romans 2 and 15 says. That the law of God is written on their hearts. Imprinted on Cain and Abel's heart was the direction of obedience. And the Bible says in Genesis that Abel got it right, but Cain took the shortcut. I got good news for you this morning. If you came to church with family drama and haven't murdered anyone, you're ahead of Cain. You're doing a good job. Maybe you've wanted to. The Bible says you're guilty of murder then, but, but at least you haven't acted upon it. The precept was given. One followed and the other chose to invite the sin that was crouching at the door to make residence in his life. This precept, though, wasn't just given to Cain and Abel. It was actually, if you go a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 14, it tells us of, of this high priest Melchizedek and Abram. Melchizedek was this high priest of God, and when Abraham, Abram, who became Abraham, came in contact with, with Melchizedek, and there's a deep, deeper teaching here, it's tied to the book of Hebrews, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he owned. So Abraham wasn't just aware of this precept, but he actively understood the precept of tithing. Let me give you just a couple things that I want to be clear about. In both instances of tithing, nothing was promised in return. It wasn't a prosperity gospel that if you give, you're going to get. These two sets of people in the first 14 chapters of Genesis gave because it came from a heart of love that just wanted to give. It's not until we read in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, before the Mosaic Law or the Law of Moses, 
we read of this thing called Jacob's vow. This vow was not just a one-time thing with Abraham. It basically stated, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if you will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. Or Jacob's vow was basically this. I will set up a place for worshiping God, and I will present a tenth or a tithe of everything that he gives me. Here's what Jacob understood about this precept. It was God who gave him the ability to get. It was God who is his ultimate protection. And before a temple or place of worship is established, here's what Jacob says. Jacob says, my tithe is going to go to the place where I worship. So this precept of giving was not just in the law, it was pre-law, but it was most definitely in the law. Leviticus 29 or 27 tells of tithing of the fruit of the trees of the crops of the land. And here's what the Lord says in Leviticus 27. The Lord says it's his. Here's what Deuteronomy 14 teaches us about some incredible lessons on tithing. Are you guys with me this morning? Yes. Tithing is a celebration. Whether in seasons of little or seasons of much, returning to God what is his should be a celebration. The Bible says that they ate, they drank, they celebrated. Deuteronomy 14 teaches us that tithing was never about legalism. God allowed them in Deuteronomy 14, go home and read it, to allow them to sell their land, to bring in the cash, to travel unencumbered to the temple or place of worship. I believe some people get caught up tithing to the penny or the first thing that leaves my bank account must be my tithe. And I want to be clear here. Make sure in honoring God, you're not making up rules to please yourself rather than to God. God knows your heart. He knows if you're in the first place and position of his life. Tithing was not about legalism. It was about God's position in our life and in our heart. Deuteronomy 14 says it was brought to their place of worship. Where your worship is where your tithe goes. And I want to be clear. Could you imagine... This is me discipling, discipling people from convert to being a disciple of Jesus. Could you imagine Cain and Abel looking to God and saying, God, here are our first fruits, but you must designate them how we choose. It's absurd when you think about it that way, but how many people in the church, because of a probably a, a good, good portion of us, have seen horror stories in the church where God's finances have been misappropriated, People have, have robbed, that happens in society today, doesn't it? We start playing God in our own mind. Rather than confronting the truth in love, we start making rules to try to keep God's money safe. The truth is, it's God's money. Right. And it's not my job to, to give my tie to the place where I worship and tell the place where I worship what to do with it. Abel didn't say, here is my tithe and God don't give it over there. The heart of a true believer or giver says, I want to give unrestricted. And if we need to deal with the malfeasance or the lack of trust that is in the American church, let's deal with that. Don't try to put new rules or new, new mandates on what God has told us to do in his precepts. Let me give you some things as your pastor that will help your church or your place of worship be able to steward God's finances even better. The Bible says that we are to give consistently. And cheerfully. Is that what the Bible says? The Bible says that when we come to the house of God, our place of worship, that we are to give consistently and we are to give cheerfully. 
Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, a book for everyday living. My, my youth pastor's wife growing up would say, a proverb a day keeps stupid away. It's a pretty good proverb. Proverb 3 and 9 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce, and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. In one of the first mentions of an observation, Malachi chapter 3, this author of this proverb knew that the people of God, if they would put God first, it is that kind of life that leads to blessing. First fruits or tithes are the first 10% of your increase. Here's what Matthew chapter 23 says. Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23 says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These, listen to me, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Luke chapter 11 gives us some more detail on, on, on this. Ready for it? For you tithe mint and all manner of herbs, but you pass by justice and the love of God. These you, have, you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Jesus noted that these legalistic religious leaders were so blinded by their own works that they would make sure that they tithed off their spice garden but wouldn't care about love and justice. So let me go back to my original point today. Why is, why is your pastor talking about tithing when it comes to love? Because listen to me. If you cannot do the very least as a disciple of Jesus, how are we going to get to the place of the weightier things of God when it comes to love and justice? If I, if I cannot trust God with my personal finances and I cannot trust the house of God or the place of worship that I am with the, with the stewardship of his kingdom, how are we going to ever get to the weightier things in life? Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you were right to tithe, but the weightier things you do not. Again, it's possible to do the right thing, but be the wrong person. Tithing and giving is such an entry level on the road to discipleship. I need six more minutes of your time, and then we'll close. The Old Testament covenant was obedience that led to salvation, and the New Testament covenant is salvation through grace that leads to obedience. Many denominations have been split. We, we have the Calvinist and the Arminianist, and they'll talk about the end game being the same, but the process of God is very important. Some will say it's semantics. It's really not. Salvation through grace and faith is different than salvation through obedience. Listen to me. One will lead you to salvation. The other will lead you to damnation. Obedience to the law, listen to me, will never be done perfectly outside of Jesus. You will always fall short. But grace that leads to obedience allows for Jesus to be our strength and our weakness. I am thankful for the price that Jesus paid and it's in him and through him that I'm able to walk a full, productive Christian life. Some arguments that I hear against tithing. Pastor, I'm saved by grace, so I don't need to tithe. And here's what I would say. You're correct. Salvation is not based upon our works. Do you know that God loves you exactly the same whether you tithe or not? He loves you. There's nothing that you are going to do 
that's going to make God to stop loving you because there's nothing that you did for him to start loving you. He loves you. He loves you regardless of what you're going through today. And it's important for you to understand that technically maybe you're correct. Conversion is different than discipleship. But you will never meet someone who has been truly born again and loves Jesus who is not generous. I believe that there is no such thing as a stingy Christian. A Christian who doesn't give is impossible. When his love, the Bible says, dropped in us, it created in us the DNA of a generosity machine. The truth is, grace's generosity looks far beyond the tithe. You know, in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that they sold everything. We have any, any takers for that this morning? <laughs> Everyone says, well, I want to be part of the New Testament church, and I just, want to, I just want to give what I can, and what the Lord has enabled me to do. Well, I don't know if you want that. <laughs> Acts chapter 2 said they sold everything. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7 says, The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know that it's not just tithing that is commanded to Scripture? Billy Graham notes in his sermon, Partners with God, one of the greatest sins in America today is the fact that we are robbing God of that which rightfully belongs to Him. When we don't tithe, we shirk a just debt. We are not just giving when we give God one-tenth, for it belongs to Him already. This is the debt that we owe. Listen to this. Not until we have given a tenth do we begin making an offering to the Lord. Do you know that the tithe is supposed to sustain the house of God? It is the offering that propels the house of God forward. Do you know this building wasn't built just on tithes alone? It was actually built on tithes and offerings. This pews that you're sitting in that we're so thankful for, the the, the wonderful facilities that we have. We are here today not just because people were obedient with the tithe, but they sacrificially gave in offerings. Malachi chapter 3 gives us this warning. Don't rob God. And you rob God by not bringing your tithe into the house of God. I have spent the last 35 or so minutes talking about a precept that is just the start of a life of generosity. I cannot wait for you to understand that generosity goes beyond just giving to your house of worship. Living a generous life. I've been able to this last week meet with countless people that are in the middle of despair. And the truth is there's more need than I have answers for except for Jesus. I sometimes feel like those disciples who said silver and gold, I don't have any. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you. I want you to know there's a world that's in need with a gospel of hope. And we have an opportunity to be a house of generosity. As my wife and the worship team comes back, we're going to sing a few songs of worship before I get waterboarded today. <laughs> Hattie Wyatt gives us the example of love that leads to giving. Hattie Wyatt was a little girl who came to a small Sunday school and asked to be taken in. But it was explained to this little girl that there was no room for her. 
In less than two years, she fell ill and she passed away. And on her little-known last pilgrimage, no one guessed her strange little secret. Beneath her pillow, there was found a torn pocketbook with 57 pennies in it, wrapped in a scrap of paper on which was written, to help build the little temple bigger so that more children can go to Sunday school. For two years, she had saved her pennies for the cause that was nearest to her heart. She passes away and the pastor of this local congregation in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the pastor told the incident to his congregation and the people began making donations for the enlargement of what God wanted to do. The papers, the story goes, told it far and wide and within five years, those 57 pennies had grown in to be $250,000. And today in Philadelphia can be seen a great church, the Baptist Temple, seating 3,300 people, a temple college with accommodations for more than 1,400 students, a hospital, and a temple Sunday school so large that all who wish to come would not just be, not just be able to be, to be there, but to be comfortable. I am thankful for little girls like Hattie Wyatt that have paved the way for generosity in our world. This pastor, I wanted to take this moment when we talked about how you passing from death to life is that you will be found loving one another and you cannot have God's love, God's agape love in your heart without being a church that understands his love is a doorway to generosity. It is this pastor's prayer as we build the future of this ministry, not just to ask God to take care of our needs. That's survivorship. And we don't serve a God that just wants us to live in survivor mentality. I wanna be so bold to ask God, God, would you allow this church to be a conduit that reaches its hands all through this world, sharing the love of Jesus? I haven't asked for you today. If you have yet, to learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to be a tither. I want to ask you to start. If maybe you tithe to the penny, maybe you've got your heart out of whack, I want you to come and say, God, forgive me for making tithing a prerequisite for your love for me, because it's not. If maybe you've never given in offerings before above your tithe, would you, would you give in offerings? I want to be part of a church that understands that when we have the love of God coursing through us, we don't have to we get to. You're here this morning, maybe you don't know Jesus. I want you to know the greatest thing that you can do is give your heart to Jesus because he will take that heart of yours that's hurt, that's broken, that has wrong perspective, that is selfish, and he'll turn it around. And he'll teach you that if you want to get something in life, the best way to get something in the kingdom is to give it away. If you need a friend, be a friend. If you need someone in your life to tell you the truth, be a truth teller. You around and be around the people of God that you want to be and incredible things will begin to happen. This pastor is not ashamed of this message this morning because I've seen it once and I've seen it a thousand times. The moment that generosity hits the heart of people, God takes you from where you're at to where he wants you to be and a valley will be won for Jesus. Listen to me, not through judgment, not through brows that are beaten, not through arms that are folded, 
This valley is gonna be one when your hand is extended and you find a need and you fill it and you find a hurt and you heal it. Would you stand across this room? Let's sing a couple worship songs just before we close our service today.
If you live in any kind of life, you'll know that at the end of our own choices and our own will outside of Jesus is a bunch of sin and destruction and relational chaos. And many in this room know what it means to be born again for your old self to die. And I want to invite you to that. What a better way. You've got eyes wide open. Pastor, I recognize that I'm, you're not just asking me to be a conversion of Jesus but to be a disciple of Jesus. That all means all. God, I don't want you just to have part of my life, I want you to have all of my life. Very quickly, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed all across this room, you say, Pastor, I'm ready. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. I've tried it on my own and I recognize that on my own, there's just been a bunch of hurt and despair and longing, lack of peace. This morning you're ready, you say, Pastor, I'm ready to give my heart to Jesus. If that's you, would you stretch up your hand so I can see it and then put it right back down? Yes, I see your hand up there. Thank you. Yes, I see your hand right there. Thank you. If you have your hand raised, leave it up. I see your hand up there, young man. Thank you. Anybody else? You say, Pastor, it's me. I, I, I've tried everything else. I'm going I'm to give my life to Jesus. If, if you raised your hand, would you leave it up so I can see it? God bless you. I see your hand in the back. Thank you. Hallelujah. Anybody else? Yes. Church, would you, would you repeat this prayer after me? And I just want to be clear. It's really, this prayer is just a gateway. It's not even the prayer that saves you. It's the belief in the prayer that does. Church, would you pray this prayer with, with these four that raise their hands? Say, Dear Heavenly Father, this morning, I'm declaring that my way is gone and your way over my life is what I'm chasing after. I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on that cross for my sins and that he didn't just stay there, but he rose victorious from that tomb so that I could have victory. Today I confess, I don't just want to be a convert, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. Everything that you have for everything that I am. 
And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Would you join heaven this morning and give in heaven, giving them a big round of applause. Hallelujah. The kids are going to be marching in here in about two minutes. My wife is going to lead one more worship song. If you raised your hand, could you raise your hand one more time? We have some members of our Yes team that want to come and introduce ourselves to you. There's one up back. There was one up here. There was one over there. There was one up there. If you're members of our Yes team, could you find those that raised their hands? And if you don't feel comfortable with that, after service, come shake your hand with me. And I would love to, to, to introduce you to this new way of living, a new way of life. And, and really start a relationship that says, man, we're going to go all in with Jesus. Brooke, would you lead us in one more song? Oh, your name is the highest. Your name is the greatest. Your name stands above them all. All thrones and positions, all powers and positions, your
King of kings 
So I have a little story for you. Uh, we were in Tahoe last night, and Ricky and I were just walking down as the people we flew down there were uh, in this place that we didn't want to be. <laughs> and uh, we came uh, into this homemade ice cream shop with homemade cookies and whatever, and we we're just looking around. Uh, we had a few minutes to wait before dinner. And as we were looking at the different flavors, this girl hops off the counter and she can hardly walk. I mean, she's limping pretty bad. And I go, what is going on with you? And she said, I rolled my ankle. Uh, she's from Argentina, so her accent's super, super thick. So you had to listen super co uh, close. And she said, I rolled my ankle and then I tumbled down the stairs. And so uh, her coworkers were kind of smirking or whatever. And I go, what are you doing at work? And she said, I, I'd go crazy at home. And she was probably early 20s, something like that. She go, I'd go crazy at home. So I just had to come to work. And I said, will you let me take a look at that? And she's like, well, okay. And I said, I have a background in rehabilitation therapy. So come around the corner. And she sat on the, the chair and I evaluated it and said, okay, I just want to make sure your soft tissue is okay. And I said, so I have something to give you. And that something is Jesus. And she goes, well, you know, I do Reiki and I'm kind of familiar with how the body works. So I tried to move it all around. I said, no, no, no. I have something so much better to give you. And his name is Jesus. And so Ricky and I prayed for her. And she goes, oh, thank you so much. And she was kind of awkward or whatever. And she was limping less when she walked around the corner. Well, after dinner, we went back to the ice cream place with, uh, with friends of ours that we flew down there. And she hops off the counter. She makes eye contact with with us and she goes look look and she's walking totally normal yes so she said I called my boyfriend and said this is what happened and he said no way and she said I know it's crazy right and I said I told you Jesus loves you and we have something better to give so she would not let us go without buying us ice cream uh, the people that we came with uh, we came to pay and she said I've got it for her to receive something that's unknown to her and forgiving to be just a byproduct of what she's received, how much more are we supposed to be just givers of something good? So here's what I feel like is happening. I feel like God's taken fear of man and saying, there's no place for that, but you have to give it to me. Giving is not just monetary, giving is time, giving is thought, giving is our lives, but giving is who we worship. So. If we were to come into that, you know, I just want to put it into to the scenario. If we were to come into that ice cream place and I go, oh, I don't, they're going to kind of think I'm a freak and, you know, whatever, whatever. Just think of what was held back. I absolutely believe her life gets to be changed forever. Forever. She knows that Jesus is powerful. She knows. We can't hold back. So what I just, what I want to declare over all of us, that the fear of man is not an idol anymore. And it's super, super easy, right? You get to just go, oh. Father, I'm not going to be so afraid of offending people as I am afraid of offending you. And I don't mean fear in a place of, because I'm going to be blasted by a bolt of lightning, but fear as in, I get to show the world what worship really looks like. And I get to show the world what giving really looks like. And I get to show the world what love really looks like. That's the opportunity we have now. We get to change the world wherever we go. And that's what he's given us.